you're disrupting so much more than one bit of the product experience. You're disrupting the entire customer journey from how something is marketed and branded at the top of it to the sales yeah. channel, to your experience discovering that product in the first place, to the features that actually live inside it. Hello, welcome to the Chief Disruptor podcast. My name is Gabriel O'Brien. I'm the Senior Research Engagement Executive at Chief Disruptor. This series of podcasts will highlight and explore the disruptive strategies, mindsets and technologies taking place across blue chip organisations, startups, scale ups as well as the public sector. I will be joined by disruptors, innovators and change makers from across the newly rebranded Chief Disruptor community. If you're interested in joining the Chief Disruptor community, visit our website at chiefdisruptor.com. This week I am joined by Dan Garrett, CEO and co-founder of Fairwill. Dan co-founded Fairwill in 2015 with the aim of making the death industry simpler, more affordable and customer-centric. Through innovative products such as online will writing and customer experience that differs vastly from the type offered by solicitors and funeral directors, Fairwill is now one of the top-rated will writers, probate and funeral providers. Dan and I explored everything from purpose-led disruption, his formative years as a founder and inventor, challenging norms around the death industry and running a hypergrowth startup. It was a real pleasure to speak to Dan, who speaks so eloquently and comfortably about disrupting his industry and clearly finds what he does very rewarding. What a way to kick off the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Right, so Dan, it's uh, so great to have you on the, the first Chief Disruptor podcast. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. It's great to be here. I guess we were real honoured to uh, have you on the first Chief Disruptor podcast because I know you actually uh, won an award for Disruptor of the Year once. Yes, I think that was for kind of legal Disruptor of the Year, which I'm not sure. It's, I, I don't know if that's that's good or not, especially when you're in the legal sector. I think that makes yeah. people look at you funny for what we do in kind of wills and funerals. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, I think it can be scary if you're overly disrupting something. So, so on one hand, we get to talk about it today. On one hand, we've massively changed the way a bunch of things work inside our products. But it's interesting when you're when you are kind of trying to change something in an industry, which bits you hold on to, what is too much of a disruption, and often we talk about it internally. As um, so, for instance, we work in the funerals sector, mm. and and people have a space in their brain for how they think about funerals and i think if you try and go too far outside of that space you massively shrink your market size so how do you how do you effectively deliver massive change in customer experience or quality whilst operating inside that same headspace or growing shifting what the category looks like that's always that's the kind of perennial challenge if you disrupt too much then you just have no product market fit or just like a bunch of uh unusual profiles who find your yeah. product interesting yeah yeah and i think that's sort of you know we've got so much to talk about today but i think that was maybe the first thing i wanted to talk about was was disruption itself i mean you've you've hinted on it there um we often have the conversation as to whether it's a, a proactive or a reactive thing um do you have any thoughts about that yeah it's so it's such an interesting one i've been reading this book Build by Tony Fidel, who is the guy who led product development for the iPod and the iPhone and the Nest. And I, and I think he talks about it in a really interesting way where 
the whole book is basically about disruption, about building new yeah. stuff. And you've got to be one of the best people in the world at it. You know, three separate times having products that have been, you know, globally uh, behavior changing in how people use all use technology across the board. And the interesting thing is he's also failed a few times. And I think there's always a risk when you're doing it. Um, describes the process really well of, because I think he went to work for, there was this sort of iPod, Apple precursor company. Yeah. Um, what's it called? General Magic. Is that, I think, I think that might be, I'm sure people, anyone listening to podcasts will probably call in and you get a thousand complaints saying I've got the name wrong, but they've got this incredible sort of all singing, all dancing, iPhone precursor, touchscreen, all the latest technology at the time. It took them four years to build and it was an absolute flop. It was the yeah. most hyped company at the time. And the way, the thing I love about the story of the iPod is the obsessive attention to the story, mm. the, the story of how it was pitched. And one of the things I think Tony Fidel speaks about to a much more insightful level of detail to almost anyone else I've had write or speak on the subject is you're disrupting so much more than one bit of the product experience. You're disrupting the entire customer journey from how something is marketed and branded at the top of it to the sales yeah. channel, to your experience discovering that product in the first place, to the features that actually live inside it. And often you have pure technologists who are looking at some technological innovation that goes into the product experience here. And you think, well, how are we going to market this to, to people in the first place? And yeah. the, I think the fantastic disruption that Apple's been able to, to drive forwards. And I think what, one of the things that Steve Jobs was in, unbelievable at, the best in the world, was the storytelling and branding and positioning of the products. You know, when the iPod initially came out, it was that thousand songs in your pocket, 10,000 songs in your pocket, yeah. whatever it was. And yeah. the advance was just a picture of the device and 10,000 songs in your pocket and you got it, you know, yeah. you understood yeah. what it was. And you look at kind of really technical product innovation and the kind of, product marketing isn't there and it isn't really sharp of like what is yeah. the what's the benefit that's going to give someone in their life you know and, and the purpose whole, yeah purpose, the whole of the drill yeah yeah so so i think there's often the people who have this, the technical skills for disruption and innovation aren't as interested in the full kind of customer value you know what's this going to change for the market what's this going to change for people out there in the world because it's it's a bit more of a rare skill to have that like real technological capability and like yeah. real passionate desire to understand what people want and how they think and what they're going to buy. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think to get disruption really right, you have to be able to do some degree of technical innovation yeah. and really get it to, to kind of tick all the boxes on, on, yeah. on the rest of it. Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting. And I, I guess before that, you've also got the idea, haven't you? The, the idea has to be good. I think one of the things we talk about is, is it's not disruption for disruption's sake. There has to be yeah. a purpose like you were talking about. Yeah, and, and, and I think that the, the practice of sharpening that idea, like Steve Jobs would pitch the iPod to people continuously and people make funny faces and like, right, they don't understand that part of it. Like continuously working on how you communicate what this thing it's not yeah. just like, oh, we've thought of an idea. It's like, really, how do you hone and craft that idea so it makes tons of sense? Like when we launched our 
wills business. I remember speaking to a journalist, we do online wills, we're the biggest in the UK. And really slick experience. It takes 15 minutes to write your will and it gets checked checked by an expert. And when we initially launched it, I remember doing an interview with someone from a kind of legal tech magazine publication. Yeah. And they were saying they kind of gave, gave me a call and they were like, you're the tenth person I've met who's uh, built an online will company like what's the yeah. technology that's different uh, you know what, what technology is just going to make this work and I was like yeah. well I, I don't know what technology people have used in the past but every person who's built that website before has been a lawyer who's like yeah. you know cottoned onto the inside that a lot of this stuff is repeatable and thought I can bang this in a website we yeah. were a team of branding experts designers behavioral psychologists people who understood that no one wants to write their will because you're yeah. psychologically hardwired to think you're not going to die tomorrow. So for us, the success of our product was absolute seamless quality in, in the user experience, yeah. but it was how we communicated the brand upfront. It was how we positioned, positioned it to recognize that it wasn't something that people wanted to spend ages on. So yeah, in understanding what is it you're disrupting because most people will focus on technical details of it, but actually you're probably disrupting people's buying behavior. You know, the, the Nest product that, that I'm, I'm going to just talk about Tony Fidel the whole time, but the, the Nest thermostat, one of the major things they disrupted was that no one bought direct to consumer thermostats in the past. You just have a heating engineer come around and say, oh, well, you should buy this thing over here. They yeah. get a kickback from the company. They had to disrupt, you know, where that product sat inside shops. They had to invent a whole new category of connected home devices. So yeah. thinking through that like chain link disruption of it isn't just the thing. It's every part of a system that you need to change to drive massive disruption around it. The ecosystem that, that product lives inside, you know, the iTunes yeah. that sits alongside the iPod. And yeah. yeah. No, no, that, that, that I, I'm sure that resonates with sort of a lot of our members. Um, I guess a question for you is, have you always been disruptive? Have you always been inventive? You know, is that if would your primary yeah. school teacher think, oh, Dan, he's created a, a disruptive will writing business. I, I think so. Um, I mean, it's obviously, we work in the kind of the death industry and it's an unusual thing to do when you're relatively young. So I'm not sure everyone, anyone would have expected that, but um, we had, our, my, me and my brother, our parents really encouraged us to make stuff the whole time. Yeah. And we had like a, we basically had like a rubbish dump in our house. It was like <laughs> the rubbish corner. And it was actually just genuinely full of crap, like literal rubbish. And both of us really like making. My brother is a kind of music producer and artist. And I think we both really have that kind of joy of making. Yeah. That I doubt we would have had it if we hadn't had a giant pile of crap in the house. Like I've got a picture on my desk at home of me as a, I'm like a toddler. I've got some clay in my hands and I have this really intense focused expression on my face and I know exactly how I was feeling at the time because I feel it's, it isn't even like I'm having fun doing it but yeah. I really love I really love making things and I really really feel that I get a lot of flow from doing it so I don't know whether yeah. it's always going to be disruptive or not but I love making things I love having ideas about it and thinking about how it will change a bunch of other stuff um, yeah so yeah, I think it's not a million. I think you could have told, said that I was probably going to make something or other when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. 
What, what about a recent one? Have you had a disruptive thought recently? Oh yeah, all the time. Um, one of the, we had a funny, we had an exec team meeting yesterday with our executive team and Jenny, who's our chief commercial officer, writes stuff down on her phone that I say, that writes down like a ridiculous list of like ridiculous stuff that I say when we've, we've just set a strategy and literally the next day I'll be like, Jenny, I've had a brand new, like, I was like, on Wednesday, we don't do meetings on Wednesday. And I was thinking about strategy and stuff. And I like fully rebranded the business to the point of like buying domain names. And we've literally just set a strategy the week before. And Jenny, Jenny was like, that's nice, you know, to hold on to it, but just like stop, stop kind of disrupting, <laughs> stop disrupting the things that we're actually trying to do now. Yeah. So I'm very much like, you know, the double diamond thing of kind of go out and explore and then bring things back together. Yeah. My real strength is like blowing the doors off stuff. I yeah. need fantastic people who I work alongside to yeah. piece it together and to really execute. Um, I really got, I've got it in my head that there's, I think there's a great idea to, I think got an idea about building like a front door company. Right. Packages, insurance, burglar alarm, access. I'm just like, is that too boring to do? <laughs> I think there's a great business model in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's a start, isn't it? That's an idea. No, no one steal that, please. <laughs> that's a, it was a great idea for people to do on this podcast. Be like, okay, give me some, give me some of your stupid ideas that you have. Yeah, I, yeah. Also, yeah. my brother is amazing at coming up with like, like he'll probably call me almost every day with yeah. an idea for a business, and some of yeah. them are really, really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually had one the other day, which was, you know, how there's a sort of in London bagel shops and crepe shops, putting all sorts. Uh, what, what, whatever happened to the crumpet? The crumpet doesn't get nearly Brilliant. as much uh, airtime as it should do. Have, have you ever put a burger between two crumpets? I've that is disgusting, it. but I like the crumpet. Yeah. <laughs> until, you, until you put a burger to them. I was about to, I was about to be like, I'm in, but that is just I'm, horrible. I ruined it. I ruined it. Um, so we, we've sort of spoken about your disruptive, uh, I guess, DNA and your inventive DNA. Um, and I guess that sort of took you to Japan, didn't it? Um, with your global innovation design degree. Um, yeah. uh, I, I guess, I mean, how did you end up there? And there's gotta be some pretty pretty interesting inventions that happened there. Yeah, so, so I mean, I really, so I, I really like how things work. I was really obsessed with that program, how it's made. It's like, a, you know, inside factories when I was younger. And then I went to firstly to study engineering. And I, I really do find it fascinating how stuff works and the maths of it. But, but I found it a bit, um, the thing that frustrated me at university was purely academic. You never actually built anything. So went from there to the Royal College of Art to do this amazing two-year master's degree that was split between Tokyo and New York and London. So that was um, what the program was. And um, when I was in Japan, a lot of my focus was on uh, stuff to do with kind of aging and geriatric care because it's a big sort of societal issue there that people yeah. just live they really live until they're very old yeah. uh, so that was a lot of the focus of the work I was doing and, and I found that I kind of spent a bunch of time in a geriatric home but the all the work I was doing was about the physical um limitations of being old yeah, it's like yeah. by the time you're 98 you're not expecting to get out of bed and like bounce up and down on a trampoline so yeah so it kind of just felt like I was missing the point of being there you know it's struggling to come to terms with what it really meant for their life to be in its kind of final stages 
and what it meant for them to die and what they wanted to leave behind. But we didn't even manage to have that conversation. You know, our, our job was to be there and to get to the heart of the biggest problems that people were struggling with. And we kind of didn't, we, we didn't touch on it. So when I came back to the UK, I spent a couple of months in the death industry. I started mystery shopping funeral directors as a hobby. This sounds terrible because both my grandmas are still alive, thankfully. But I was just going to a funeral director say, oh, my grandma's died and go through the process of it. And mm. um, as I got qualification in will writing, and I remember just thinking, this is amazing. You know, this is the biggest consumer industry that's been left untouched, not just by technology, but by any kind of customer centricity. Everyone can yeah. picture in their head that sort of local Dickensian funeral director and the brand proposition of yeah. everything to do with dealing with death, whether it's wills or probate or funerals, is a guy in a top hat, gravestones, you know, leather bound books about the law and the rest of it. It's like everyone needs to deal with this. It's a hugely emotionally charged topic. You know, the single biggest financial event of your life is when you die. Think about all the attention that goes on credit cards, debit cards, mortgages, life insurance, the rest of it. This is the biggest, biggest financial event you're ever going to go through. And it's an absolute afterthought of how to manage it better. So relative to, you know, the emotional distress and the, the, you know, the enormity of the decisions that you need to make, there's been relatively so little innovation, so little um, focus on customer experience and on brand as well. Yeah. And you know, in a way you could say that's a massive cop, cop out because we were disrupting something that basically hadn't changed for 200 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's probably the thing that I'm most interested in is, is, is that there's probably before the customer centricity and the technology comes that there's almost a cultural barrier there. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think, um, it definitely has, it's been a bit of a war of attrition. You know, it's, we're, we're now the biggest in the UK when it comes to wills and we break down about one in eight of all new wills, but it was a long slog to get there. So when we started, online wills were relatively frowned upon, but you know, we have an incredible legal team of some of the top people in the law behind wills and probate in the UK. We've got, you know, major relationships with banks and charities and the rest of it. Those are hard won because it is seen as this thing that is only done by solicitors. So it has taken a while to build that kind of trust and reputation that's allowed us to do it. And it's, you know, that innovation curve thing, crossing the chasm where you have kind of early adopters and then you've got an early majority and the rest of it and yeah. laggards. And the interesting thing in the death industry overall is it's just 20 years behind loads of other industries. I used to go to a travel agent on the high street and arrange a holiday through them. And it's much less of a leap to say, well, you know, I'll roll the dice and book some flights online or yeah. look at pictures of the property on Airbnb and decide to say, well, I'll do it because the risk is relatively low. If you get your will wrong, it's a bit of a disaster. If you yeah. go and organize your funeral with someone who has, who isn't in the local area, who doesn't have a reputation. Yeah. That can be a complete disaster. So on one hand, it's understandable that it's somewhat behind other industries because the stakes are very high. But on the other hand, what holds back the kind of innovation, innovation potential is lots of people sit at home thinking about their dream holidays, whereas we are psychologically hardwired to not think about death. It's what allows us to get out of bed in the morning, have our delicious burger crumpets, and, <laughs> and actually go about our 
day without thinking about the existential threat of the fact that one day everyone we know is going to be dead. So, yeah. so I think that means that there's much less uh, demand for better services, for new services, and particularly what we're doing in funerals where we do um, direct cremation, which is essentially when no one attends the cremation. And that sounds like, you know, a few years ago, that's very, very uncommon option kind of thing using their funeral and just create them and chuck their ashes in the sea. Um, but realistically, what it allows you to do with direct, direct cremation is, you know, no one attends the cremation, but we'll deal with the cremation, bring you back the ashes, and then you and your family and friends can do whatever you want to celebrate that person's life. You know, we've had funerals setting off fireworks on top of the South Downs, drinking champagne on a beach, being in someone's garden in a favorite restaurant, doing whatever it is that represents that person who died for a thousand pounds versus a national average of about four and a half grand. So it's, I think it's, um, you have this snowball effect, especially in funerals where, you know, that thing of no one ever got fired for buying IBM. It's just like, Shit, I need to organize it. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. I guess you don't no, know. It's the first crack one. Crack on. Yeah, crack yeah, on. Yeah, okay, fine. Someone has to organize a funeral. It's like, well, I've only ever been to this type of funeral before. Everyone's wearing black, by a gravestone. You know, it's a really somber event. Actually deciding to do something differently is a bit of a leap of faith. But what's happened since in 2019, one in 30 funerals was a direct donation. Last year, it was about 18%. It's projected to be 27% by 2025. So this yeah. is really changing and partly people are exposed to other people's funerals where yeah everyone's in a pub telling stories about the person who died rather than being in your kind of local authority crematorium which isn't exactly uh, like the world's nicest place and so it's it's a bit of it is that early adopter thing but the the way that it spreads is from other people being exposed to that way of celebrating someone's life so I think it's on a it's on a great path at the moment. This kind of very long awaited um, need for change and for uh, challenging the traditions that come with how we all approach death, especially in the UK, is like it is really starting to change, which is very exciting. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a it's a real thinker. It's a real thinker. Um, let let let's go to the product then. Um, so obviously you started with just wills after after qualifying to be a will writer. When you developed that product, what were the what were the key principles to that? I couldn't say there was a strategy there because I just built it at the Royal College of Art with my friend, my co-founder Tom. And the main thing, we were coming at it from a very design-led angle. Pretty much none of us had run a business before, so it wasn't we didn't sit down and say, Oh, here's a great strategy. But I'll go, I'll go through the evolutions of the business as well. So yeah, sounds um, great. We basically looked around the market and thought, everyone needs to do this. It's unbelievably hard. And all the solutions on offer literally look like the most mangled, horribly designed thing in the entire world. It's clearly made by lawyers, where on every page, there'll be drop-down menus with like 50 lines of complicated legal jargon to understand what you can progress it. So we asked ourselves, is it possible to responsibly have an incredibly slick, beautifully designed user experience? That was that was the starting point. It's like, can we make this an absolute delight to go through? And in the final show at the Royal College of Art, we had people queuing up. You know, this is like paintings and sculptures, and eighty thousand people go to it. We had our 
computer inside a wooden box that was built with a little printer inside it. A piece of paper came out of a slot next to it to do people's wills. And people were making wills in five minutes. People were making wills. We had a smaller version of the product, but you could make a will in 30 seconds, basically. And which is irresponsible, by the way, I should say now that those were not good wills. And you told people these are not good wills inside them. Um, but the thing for us was absolute obsession about copywriting, about visual design, and about the flow through the product. Very design led, very user experience led. And that was a strategy in a way. And the way it relates to the customer need is I can guarantee it, we've written hundreds of thousands of wills in the UK that. The frame of mind for most people writing their will is I desperately want to stop writing my will and I can't be bothered to do this because I'm pretty sure I'm not going to die tomorrow. So you have to take friction out of every part of it. You have to obsess over how things are framed and explained because the more cognitive load there is, your brain is on fire when you're writing your will saying, stop doing this now. Uh, I don't even have to think about this. So you've got to take every possible bit of friction out of the experience. The other part of it that really made our customers love farewell was we really focused on the emotional side as well so when we started the business about one in a hundred wills you know out in the market had any personal details in them you know as much obviously you have your bank accounts and whatever who gets your house very little about you know the type of funeral that someone wants and almost nothing where you're saying right i want to leave you this object or i want to leave you this amount of money for this reason and that's something we really lent into was not just dealing with you know the practicalities and making it an exercise in legal compliance, but saying we're going to really help people to engage with the fact they're dealing with death here. This is a huge um, task they're taking on. And I want to read you some of the things I've just put up. So we went to 80% of our customers, including the most amazing stuff in their worlds, really, you know, like love letters to partners, really thoughtful gifts to their kids saying, I want you to have this and here's why. So this is from one of our customers who collects fossils, left a gift of their yep. fossil collection to their partner. And wrote, these are millions and millions of years old. I love being able to hold them and marvel at the age and intricacy of our universe and the short, sharp beauty of our lives. I love living mine. I love you. And that's just, you know, some lovely random person who's decided to write a will with us. And it completely changes the experience for them. Of, right, I just made a legal document and yeah, sure, it was faster and cheaper than anywhere else I could have done it to actually I'm really proud of what I've done and it's going to set up their family in a much better way when they die. So that for us was, was the kind of magic inside what we were doing. And the other part of it, you know, I'd love to say we had a really great strategy right from the beginning, but the truth is when you launch something, it sort of evolves. So what we realized is when we got this level of emotional engagement, it also resulted in a much higher proportion of our customers choosing to leave money to charity in their wills. And they were like in the right headspace of it. It wasn't just like how quickly can I go through the legal questions. And as a result, we started to work with charities. We actually worked with Macmillan to start with, which is a pretty big partner. And we now have raised, we've raised over 600 million pounds in pledged income through our yeah. wills wow. business for, you know, over a thousand charities in the UK. And that's become a sort of significant part of our business as well, where we have tools and software that charities use for what's called legacy fundraising. Yeah, raising money through gifts and wills. So, you know, I'd love to sit here and say, yeah, sure, I had that all figured out right from day one. But the truth is, I'd never even heard of it. And we focused on the customer experience and we focused on getting people to engage in it in this slightly oblique way. And that opened up this whole world of other possibilities for us. Yeah.
no that, that is a, it's a great story and then and then the next step was was probate and funerals and mm -hmm. was that was that a natural step it's pretty natural from the will side of things because we had had lots of our customers coming back to us saying well actually someone's died or our own customers would die and people come back to say can you help with probate so pretty much everyone who does wills out there in the wild would also do probate so it's historically been the business model actually that the wills would be relatively cheap but people would appoint you in the wills to do the probate work and then you charge them a fortune for it we don't charge a fortune we're the best priced in the market and we're also national probate firm of the year so um we basically had customers coming back to us asking for it and we thought let's take this for a spin yeah. And probate is really, really complex. It's yeah. you know, it's it's much harder to standardise the process. Uh, but we've built some really smart internal tools for us to be able to manage that um, and deliver on a much lower price point than than most other people in the market, which is which is um, really gratifying. And the funerals bit was really interesting as well which kind of like what i was saying about how we got into the charity side of things when you start to when we've done a lot of wills we realized that um we had all this amazing information inside the wills about the funerals that people wanted and when you read through it and we really have like you know hundreds of thousands of funeral wishes there was what people wanted in their funerals was very different to the funeral market today it was all don't wear black, have a cheap and cheerful send off, like don't make a fuss. Obviously some people also wanted traditional funerals, but overwhelmingly yeah. it was, it expressed people's desire to have a funeral that represented their life. And in doing that, you could look at, you know, essentially what the user statements were for what someone wanted a funeral to be like, line up against the funeral industry today and see a total mismatch between the two. We started to say, well, okay, what if this is all about how you celebrate someone's life and it's on beaches and hilltops and gardens and restaurants and it starts with a direct cremation where we make that process of dealing with someone's body and getting you the ashes back absolutely seamless and we guide you through a process of understanding that this is you know this is the world is your oyster when it comes to really representing and celebrating someone's life and it doesn't have to yeah. be it doesn't just have to be oh yeah someone's 98 and they died and therefore you can have a nice funeral We've been really proud to do funerals for awful situations, people losing their children and the rest of it. And it's not like you say, well, that's really sad. So now we're going to have a sad funeral. It's yeah. more important than any than at any other time to actually say, well, how do you help people through the grieving experience? What happens psychologically when you lose someone you're close to is in an instant, all the love and connection you have with that person is gone. And it is the most painful thing you can experience. There's something called the Holmes and Ra stress scale basically rates from naught to a hundred, how awful something is. And losing yeah. a spouse, your parent, a best friend is literally a hundred out of a hundred. So um, what we have really come to realize through doing a large number of funerals is it isn't about the flowers or the urn or the casket. Those details matter a bit, but what really matters is bringing people together to celebrate the life of the person who's died. And for an increasing proportion of the population, the right way to do that isn't by having a kind of traditional funeral with religious overtones, because it's just nothing to do with what that person's life was like. And yeah. by removing some of the constraints of where and how you do it and how much it costs, we've been a part of some truly spectacular funerals and really amazing funerals in 
really sad, difficult circumstances where as a result, the families have come through it with um, more support from the people around them. And uh, yeah, that's been quite an amazing thing to be part of. Yeah, no, it, it sounds amazing. And I think the thing that strikes me is how the customer is at the center of everything from the, from the custom, from the user experience all the way to the to the experience of the funeral so it, it it really is sort of an amazing story i think i want to come back to you as a founder and and as a ceo now as well um and a couple of the challenges that you've had running your business um in terms of i guess the first one is hyper growth you obviously experienced massive growth um going to number one uh, in the will writing industry. What, what, what have you seen uh, in your growth recently? Is it, you know, are you experiencing the same? And when it comes to hyper growth, what are the challenges in that? How do you sustain it? Um, what are the challenges? I mean, we definitely had it, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. There was a real uh, significant growth in demand, especially for wills. And then obviously the death rate went up. So there was lots more funerals and probate as well. And at one point we had to, you know, we were a relatively small company, 50 people maybe, and we had to hire 30 people in a couple of weeks, which is quite hard. Um, what was the main challenges? Communication becomes really hard when the company gets yeah. bigger. Working remotely and doing that, lot of screen and it was very hard. Um, you start to see really good people and teams working on a problem in a slightly wonky way because communication hasn't been clear enough. I think yeah. we didn't get that right. Uh, so I think that's probably that's probably the first thing to go. And then the cost of unclear communication is incredibly high. Mm. The cost of misalignment is just enormous. Yeah. How, um, how did you fix it? How did you fix it? Um, I wouldn't say that we have. <laughs> I'm going to be completely honest. Yeah. Um, I think you have to, I think you have to fix it by uh it's like an amoeba or something <laughs> an amoeba kind of reproducing it like you have to split things off you have to yeah. grow and separate and split off and then you really focus on the kind of interconnectedness and communication between teams or like making absolute clarity of the numbers that are aiming for or being aimed for or whatever um, yeah. so earlier stage the measure of success is everyone's wearing 10 hats. You're all in the same room. You're moving really quickly and clear accountability is like not even a thing. Probably didn't know what the word accountability meant for the first like, few years at the company. And then it switches and clear accountability is everything. And it's hard to do because you're used to working in that kind of cross-functional setup. Um, yeah. So, uh, tightly aligned teams that are loosely coupled which is a lot of the terminology that spotify uses and that's hard to do it means you start to need to have real expertise in how to operate a company at a larger scale like the operating risk and the goal the goal setting process performance management because if you start to have someone who's running a team who's accountable for it who doesn't know how to manage that team and it's like well suddenly you've got 15 people just like not actually doing a good job not because this person is an idiot but because they were an absolute wizard at one stage of the company, but don't necessarily have the experience to run a larger team. So, so yeah, you need to develop a completely different skill set, which is 
you start to have this other product and the product is your business. And you realize that the generalists who've got you to where you are so far don't necessarily have the expertise about of, of, or at least we didn't, some people, you know, second time founders, more experienced people in, we just didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have the expertise of, the expertise of running a scaling company or a scaled company. So, so knowing how to be the product manager of the company itself yeah. was a real challenge. And I think it's been a long process for us of actually um, uh, hiring experienced growth stage executives into the business. And it's just, it's, our team is really at, at this point now, and it's take, it takes a long time to kind of build a team like that. Yeah. Our team now is like every person has been there and done it and not in some huge corporate company in a like hyper growth situation in their specific function. Mm. Um, and that makes a huge difference. People understand how to communicate, understand how to structure teams, understand how to kind of spot problems and unblock them. Yeah. No, that, that's great. And then, and then continuing that sort of people conversation, I think, um, you know, we, we obviously are aware of the recruitment and retention challenge at the moment. Um, and also the, the emphasis placed on mental health, um, and well-being within the workplace. Is that something that, um, you guys have found particularly difficult given the industry you work in, or are you having the same challenges as, 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 as other people? I think we definitely, we definitely have some of the same challenges as other people with, I think we've found hiring, hiring for us has been a strength in the past. Part of it is we work on an interesting thing. And that means that probably 60% of people are like, absolutely not. I don't want to spend all my time thinking about funerals. But yeah. then you have people who are like, brilliant. I really, I love the opportunity to see the impact that we have on customers in a really hard time. It's not like we're just making it easier to buy a pair of trousers online. Like yeah. we're helping people at some of the hardest times of their life in a really meaningful way, which is, the best hiring hiring tool you can ever have yeah um, but it does also mean that we have in general we hire people who are really mission driven and who have really high eq yeah so there's a lot of emotion flying around in the business and um, me included and <laughs> um i think that i definitely think we've made that classic we've made that classic mistake of um you know, it's a, it's a high performance team, not a family. And our team has been so close and so supportive of each other and, and um, is made of the kindest, friendliest, most supportive, collaborative people that I've ever had the pleasure to work with. Um, but then that's a difficult environment if you're like, well, someone's not performing. Yeah. So, so I think getting that transition right and and having a very performance orientated culture when we didn't kind of have that in our origins basically uh, that's quite a difficult cultural transformation to go through and i think we've made a lot of headway with it but it's also something i struggle with you know it's, i haven't worked somewhere else before and on yeah. one hand yeah of course you want good strong trusting relationships with your team so yeah i think that's that's uh, that's definitely a real challenge. Yeah, and and have you learned as a leader and a and a co-founder? Yeah, absolutely. It's been kind of like the learning curve is just like a learning vertical brick wall that you've got to smash your head through once a week for many years. Uh, so yeah, yeah well, definitely, I've definitely 
I don't think they could have learned more doing basically anything else, which is the exhilarating part of my role. But it would be nice to just have a month where I'm like, right, I actually know what I'm doing and I'm really, I'm really good at this and I've seen this before. Yeah. 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 And maybe a holiday as well. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, well, thanks very much, Dan. I think uh, that was an amazing conversation. We we covered everything from from crumpets to customer centricity to to leadership. So, what, what a great way to start! Um, I know you're joining us uh, at Chief Disruptor Live on the 18th of October uh, in Central London at our flagship summit. So, I'm really looking forward to that, to that conversation. Um, it's been a real honour having you on. So, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. So that wraps up the very first episode of the Chief Disruptor podcast. Thanks so much to Dan. It was amazing to hear more about such a fascinating journey. As mentioned, Dan will be joining us and the likes of Aston Martin, BT, Specsavers and many more for our flagship event, Chief Disruptor Live, on October the 18th in central London. For more details on the agenda and the Chief Disruptor community, please visit our website, chiefdisruptor.com. Join me next week as I explore all things future of work with Josh Reynolds, future workplace adoption lead at Lloyd's Banking Group. We'll be delving into everything from employee retention to the role of the office going forward. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to having you along next time.